Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Sandor Katz is a world-renowned leader in the field of fermentation and the author of numerous books, including the acclaimed New York Times bestseller, The Art of Fermentation. I recently spoke with Sandor about his new book, Fermentation as Metaphor, and the liberating and connecting experience offered through engagement with microbial communities. He shares that the simple act of fermentation can give rise to deeply intimate moments of connection through the magic of the invisible forces that transform our foods and our lives, generation by generation. You describe yourself as a fermentation revivalist. So I wonder if we could start by having you share a bit about what that means to you. Well, sure. I mean, the reason I started calling myself a fermentation revivalist is just, um, you know, my sense at how um, common fermentation has been in the not too distant past. And it's so integral to all of our food traditions, like, you know, where, whatever part of the world our ancestors came from, you know, fermentation is an essential part of how people make effective use of whatever food resources are available to them. But in the last several generations and at different paces in different parts of the world, um, you know, people have become increasingly distanced from the production of food and all of the processes that we use to transform the raw products of agriculture into all of the foods that people uh, uh, eat and drink. And it so happens that the same time period where, you know, these processes became more um, uh, mysterious and distanced to people is also the time when uh, the war on bacteria developed. People developed this fear and projected all of their fear of bacteria, you know, onto these ancient and important uh, transformative fermentation processes. So when I call myself a fermentation revivalist, it's about, you know, demystifying uh, uh, the process of fermentation, getting people comfortable with it, and uh, encouraging people to familiarize themselves with uh, uh, processes that are extremely important but have become uh, uh, mysterious for people. And, and you've said that fermentation is a, a form of activism and that fermentation, at least when it's the do-it-yourself form of fermentation, is a radical act. So what makes it so radical? Well, I, I mean, I would say that more broadly than fermentation, I mean, you know, any in, in the context of our uh, contemporary food system where, you know, we're really encouraged to just be passive consumers and, uh, you know, meet our needs at, at the supermarket, that, you know, sort of any direct involvement in the production of food um, you know, is subversive and is radical. So I, it's not that I think that there's anything intrinsically radical about the process of fermentation, but that in the context of our current food system, bypassing 
this um, sort of centralized system of production and sort of finding some direct connection for ourselves because, you know, producing food requires interaction with the soil, with the organisms of the soil, with plants, with animals, with bacteria, with fungi. So, uh, you know, that's the aspect of it that I would consider to be a, a radical act. And what about the activism component to that? I guess, especially in response to the system you're describing. I mean, it's activism, you know, really only because of this pervasive system of mass production of food, which, which, which I would regard as, you know, just completely unsustainable. For so many reasons. I mean, you know, uh, uh, number one is, you know, the, the products are nutritionally diminished. They're wasteful. You know, as the as the pandemic has really illustrated, you know, our, our centralized systems of food production and distribution are very vulnerable. But, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, ways that this system can become interrupted. I mean, you know, whether, whether it's a spike in energy prices, whether it's war, whether it's natural disasters. And so, you know, I think in terms of thinking about, you know, food security, it's really incumbent upon, uh, you know, people in every region of the world to, you know, think about, you know, developing and increasing productive capacity in terms of, of food. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, local and regional food production is a form of of, of activism. And, I th- and, and, you know, in my travels, I've met, you know, sort of incredible activists in many different parts of, of the world who are, you know, reimagining and um, reinvigorating local and regional food production, as well as processing. Um, so, you know, there's, there's the growing food is one aspect of it, but then turning the products of agriculture into the foods and beverages that people actually eat and drink every day. So, I mean, I think that that's definitely activist work or, or it can be done in an activist spirit. And it often is done that way. Mm. I mean, you talk about reinvigorating and returning. And one thing that really struck me when I first came across your work and read The Act of Fermentation was the broader invitation you are articulating to reclaim a relationship, not only with food production, but with traditions and communities and ultimately with the living world through the simple act of fermentation. And I wonder if you could just talk a bit about what you mean by reclaiming and and, and the ways you see it taking form. Every organism's food is a manifestation of its interaction with its environment. Humanity has decided that we are going to, you know, sort of transcend this relationship, which, you know, every other kind of organism has with its environment. And, um, you know, we've created these elaborate systems of, you know, centralized mass production and distribution that supposedly have like, you know, liberated us. And, uh, you know, I mean, I I can certainly see ways in which people have been liberated by not having to spend all of our time procuring the food resources to get us through the day. But, something has also been lost. You know, I think that many of our biggest problems relate to the ways in which we have become so distanced from our environment. And I think, you know, whenever anybody gets involved in, you know, producing even a tiny proportion of the food they're going to eat for themselves, uh, you know, it forces them to pay attention 
and become more intimately connected to, you know, all of these environmental factors. Producing food like forces us to become more connected to the weather, the insects that are around us, just so many aspects of the world that are right there, but it's so easy for us to ignore them because they don't seem like they're directly relevant to our um, you know, to our, to our life and to our experience, even though they are. So, you know, for taking, you know, an issue, let's say like, like climate change, um, you know, the more connected you are to your environment, you know, the more you're going to notice things that are changing, you know, the more you're just, you know, getting out of an air conditioned car and into an air conditioned house, the less relevant it is to um, to your direct experience. So, you know, reclaiming our food is reclaiming much more than our food. It's reclaiming this, you know, huge set of, uh, of relationships that ultimately connect us to the land and, you know, to the biological web that we are part of. I mean, and you talk a lot about cultivating these relationships both literal in the in the sense of cultivation as a you know the primary aspect at the at the core of fermentation, but also in a metaphorical sense, you know which really leads us into kind of where your new book is focused on, which is the the, the metaphors that fermentation uh, evokes uh, that you've been exploring. So maybe we could start by having you talk a bit about kind of the cultivation in the broadest sense as a metaphor. I mean, you know, I, I would say it's not even just as a metaphor. Cultivation culture, these words, you know, our sense of what we can cultivate maybe has changed over time. But this word that sort of originates with like cultivating the land in order to grow crops has so many more broader applications. You know, we cultivate certain values in our children that we, you know, that we want to manifest in, in, in the next generation. You know, culture is any information that we pass down from generation to generation. So whether that is, you know, the language and the meaning of the words that we're using or values or belief systems or very practical information. How do you grow carrots? Um, How do you grow squash? What is the season? When do you plant those seeds? When do you harvest those? How do you cook those? How do you ferment them? Like, you know, all of this is is cultural information. And it's not that any of it is, you know, in terms of cultivation, I mean, none of it is metaphorical. I mean, it's all, you know, it's all important things that we're seeking to pass down from generation to generation that are outside of our genes. And of course, you know, we talk about yogurt cultures and, um, um, you know, introducing a culture in the ferment. So in the cultivation of microorganisms on our food, which is what we're doing in fermentation, we use the same word to, 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 you know, culture to describe, you know, the community of bacteria that turn milk into yogurt as we use to describe, you know, language belief systems and, you know, the totality of what we're trying to pass down uh, generation to generation. In your new book, Fermentation as Metaphor, you're really talking about fermentation as a metaphor for societal change, cultural changes, political changes, economic issues, and you're even exploring spiritual um, perspectives of looking at our relationship to each other and the living world. And I was really intrigued that you start the book by talking about how in fermentation, 
there are no absolutes, no black or white. And so that was really intriguing. Uh, I wanted to, if you could speak to that a bit. Um, you, you know, really the way I, I, I came to this is, you know, when I first became interested in all things fermented, which would be about 1993 is probably when I made my first sauerkraut and, 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 and miso and started getting very interested in all things fermented. But every now and then I would notice in some, you know, article that I was reading, you know, let, let's say an, an article about, you know, jazz music, like a, a certain place and time being uh, one of great musical fermentation. I saw references to artistic fermentation. I saw uh, references to spiritual fermentation. I saw references to political fermentation. And I learned that the word fermentation comes from the Latin word fervere, which means to boil. And so, you know, prior to science settling on an understanding of fermentation as the transformative action of microorganisms, people recognized fermentation by the bubbles. If you ferment uh, uh, pressed grape juice into wine, you're going to see bubbles developing as the, as, as the fermentation comes to life. Any liquid that you ferment, bubbles are going to be a manifestation of the fermentation. So it was recognized always as a form of, let's call it, cold boiling. And as an extension of that, at least in the English language, not really in every language, but people started using fermentation in a metaphorical sense. So anytime, you know, things were getting bubbly, you know, things were excited or excitable, you know, that could be a manifestation of, of fermentation. And so, you know, in the, in the book, I'm, I'm finding through the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, citations from, you know, literature 400 years old, um, you know, referring to, you know, different, different things as forms of fermentation, religious fervor as fermentation, um, so, so, I mean, I think that there's a long tradition in, in our language of using fermentation in this uh, metaphorical sense. And in this book, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting on this. I'm trying to sort of explore this more fully and then also explore some of the, you know, concepts that I find people uh, uh, frequently projecting onto the idea of fermentation. Specifically, those are, you know, purity and contamination. People assuming that, you know, you need to sterilize everything. You have to have pure blank slate in order to introduce the organisms that you want to grow, which really is contrary to the reality. I mean, in general, you know, the, the organisms of fermentation are found on the foods that we're fermenting. And it's just a matter of creating a selective environment to encourage the growth of the organisms that we want while simultaneously discouraging other organisms. But, you know, generally you're not working with a, a blank slate at all. You know, in the microbial world, there is no purity. That's like totally a, 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 a human construct. Um, so like in a lot of, you know, commercial winemaking, you know, you might use little chemicals to sterilize the grape juice and then you can introduce the, you know, single strain of yeast that's been propagated into that. But that's a real departure from the long history of, of winemaking that just works with the large group of organisms that are there. And then also, you know, the, the contrasting concept is contamination. Everyone's always freaking out with their, you know, with their fermentation, you know, how, how do I protect it from contamination? But 
you know, contamination's everywhere. You know, every everything is contaminated. So 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 it's really about, you know, encouraging enough growth of the organisms that are producing, let's say, the acids, which are going to protect it from the random growth of other organisms on it. So, you know, purity is impossible and contamination is inevitable. And, you know, even with those uh, uh, factors, you know, fermentation has been practiced in every part of the world for thousands of years. Yeah. And you talk about how this, you know, fear of contamination, which you describe as inevitable, supports this state of separation and the fear of the other. Um, you know, in our human societies, you know, this this idea of, you know, protecting the purity of our, you know, society against the contamination of outside ideas is, well, I mean, it's been weaponized, really. People, you know, sort of projecting fear of the other, um, you know, has just been such a, you know, sort of theme throughout human history. And so, um, you, you know, all these sort of, you know, metaphors that we're, you know, picking up from, from fermentation, you know, we can look and see how they have been, you know, sort of applied in our, you know, in our uh, society, in our culture, in our politics. Mm. And, and in your experience kind of working with, with people for, you know, quarter century now, uh, people who are interested in fermentation, what have you noticed when they actually start engaging with this physical act of fermenting foods as far as kind of how it changes their ability to, to perceive the other differently? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's hard to say that like, you know, fermenting leads to, you know, that, that a person's fermenting, you know, leads to a particular outcome in terms of, you know, their, their, their outlook. One thing I hear, uh, you know, that I hear often from people is it, it, it making them, you know, more aware of, you know, let's say invisible forces that are continually at work. You know, when you're, you know, sort of focusing on your your little, you know, jar of uh, uh, vegetables that's fermenting and you can't see any of the bacteria and yet you begin to see changes. You begin to notice bubbles. Um, maybe, you, maybe you begin to notice a little um, um, uh, growth developing on the surface, which is, which is very common. But, you know, it just, it forces you to pay attention in, 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 in different kinds of ways. And people, you know, carry this beyond the kitchen where they're fermenting in terms of, uh, you know, maybe a, you know, keener sensibilities, but in terms of outlook of looking at other people, I, I, I don't think it necessarily leads people in, you know, any particular direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in both your previous work and this new book, and especially the new book, you talk about the mystical dimension of fermentation, the beauty of the unseen and working with mystery, which you just described as also what appeals to people. They kind of tap into that broader, unknown sense of what's possible and out there. You know, it was really intrigued because this is not what you usually imagine when you think of fermentation, which is like, you know, this mystical sensibility. Well, but, but I mean, it is very mystical. 
for us right now in this period when sort of, you know, science has some understanding of what's going on, maybe less so than it has been historically for people. But, um, you know, fermentation has been such a such a mystery that it's been really seen in many contexts, you know, as something, you know, quite literally divine. And, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of ceremony and ritual organized around fermentation. I mean, we can even look at, you know, some of the, you know, major world religions to see, you know, iconography related to fermentation. I mean, you know, in the, in the Roman Catholic mass, it's not, you know, some random substance that transubstantiates into the blood of Jesus Christ. It's, it's wine. Um, and, you know, wine is this sort of, you know, magical transformation. That's just one example. I mean, I think visiting people in, you know, uh, uh, living in more traditional kinds of societies. I mean, I was in a, in a, in a village in, in, in China and uh, this woman who was making rice alcohol, she took a little cluster of, of chili peppers and did a little incantation on top of it, you know, one where, you know, as she set the fermentation, you know, in place to ferment and, you know, try to protect the ferment and, 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 and bring it vitality. But, um, you know, around the world, there's just been a huge amount of, you know, mythology and ceremony and ritual around fermentation. And, you know, it's always been viewed as something uh, mystical mm. and magical. Mm. I mean, but it also seems like you're, you know, you're talking about the historical significance of fermentation in cultures and religions and spiritual spaces. But the beauty of the unseen is also something that transcends any sort of specific tradition and is something that people could participate in now. Um, you know, so... And one thing I would say is, you know, even, okay, knowing, or like, okay, there are cells of Leuconostoc uh, uh, mesorentoides in, uh, on the vegetables, and they're going to initiate, you know, I know this fact that the microbiologists and the botanists say that the cells that are initiating the fermentation are there, but there's still something very mystical about watching it. Like, you know, you shred the vegetables and salt them and get them submerged under their own juices, and it doesn't start immediately. Like, it takes some patience. You know, you wake up the next morning, and you look at it. Like, are there any signs that it's coming to life yet? I mean, I feel like, you know, even for me, after doing this for for 27 years, I mean, every time I start a ferment, you know, it's a it's it's this huge... Um, you know, exciting moment when I when I can see that it has come to life. I mean, it's a little bit of an act of faith every time. You know, I like I know theoretically the bacteria are there. Um, I know from experience this is the environment that I'm trying to set up to encourage them to do their thing. But you know, until I can actually witness it, it's, it's, it's really, um, um, you know, it's a little bit of an act of faith. Like, is it going to happen this time? In the book, you talk about how the greatest promise of metaphorical fermentation is that it generates new forms, which seems very, very relevant right now in the midst of everything that's happening during the pandemic, when so much has been broken open to reveal kind of the chasms in our society. So I'm curious, you know, you wrote this book, and I guess we're finishing it just as the pandemic was started. How that shifted your perspective on what you were writing about and the the new forms you're seeing emerging at this time? 
Well, I, I mean, so uh, uh, both in literal fermentation and in metaphorical fermentation, you know, the fermentation is breaking down, you know, previous forms into into new forms. And we don't know yet what the outcome of this pandemic is going to be on us. I mean, as I was finishing my manuscript, you know, it was clear that society was making this sort of abrupt shift in a way that, you know, I don't know that I had ever seen before. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, fermentation is just, it's, it's a potent metaphor for, for how to think about the kinds of changes that we need to make. Like we need we need bubbliness. We need, you know, we need excitement. We need, you know, we, we need new ideas. And, you know, it's not that I have, you know, any idea, you know, sort of what the outcome needs to be. You know, I, I, I just know that we can't keep on doing what we've been doing, that we need to shift. We need to adapt because our circumstances are, are adapting. And, you know, this is another way in which, you know, the metaphor of fermentation really, really is is powerful because fermentation is all about creating environments. And, and um, you know, it's the environment that determines which among the many organisms that are present on any food in any given situation are going to be able to thrive. And, you know, in the metaphorical ferment, it's the same thing. Like our, you know, our environment is shifting and, you know, we have to shift, you know, the structure or, you know, some aspect of how we're organizing our lives and our society in, in response to that. And, you know, we, we can't keep on operating within the box we've constructed. We, you know, we've got to be thinking outside of the box to come up with new solutions, new ways of living, you know, just as we've been forced to do really in the context of, of COVID. Like, you know, how can life go on, you know, while minimizing, uh, you know, our, our exposure to this? Mm. I mean, and quite literally during the pandemic, fermentation in its many forms seems to be flourishing and that everybody, you know, seems to have a sourdough starter going or is suddenly having time or interest about making pickles or sauerkraut or exploring with kombucha. Um, and maybe I'm reading into this, but it seems like there's more than just, you know, people having more time to indulge in this pastime or hobby, but there's something deeper uh, at play here. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think I think it's at a lot of different levels. I mean, on the one hand, you have I mean, a, a lot of people had time on their hands and were looking for for um, things to do. Um, um, you know, one of those things was baking bread. There's been a national yeast shortage. Uh, it's been really hard to get yeast in the United States. So I'm sure for some subset of people, that's the thing that made them realize this is the time that I have to learn how to do sourdough bread because there, there's no there's no yeast available. But I think, yes, I, I mean, I totally agree with you that there there's also just this, um, I have to do something different. I can't go about my usual activities, so I have to find, you know, some new interest, new expression. And I think that, you know, fermentation is, is, is ultimately a very hopeful practice because, you know, it does not yield immediate gratification. There's always delayed gratification in, 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 in fermentation. So in a quite literal way, it's an investment in the future. If you are, you know, despondent and despairing and, you know, don't know if there's a future, 
I mean, why would you invest your energy into into fermenting? I mean, it is quite literally an investment in, you know, something that you're going to be able to enjoy in the future. So I think there there is an, you know, intrinsic um uh, you know, hopefulness to any practice of fermentation. And also perhaps a, a a spiritual hunger that gets fed through the practice. And that was something I always resonated with, with your work, you know, is that you, you explored that directly. And it seems like in some ways the resurgence that fermentation has been going through, you know, these last 25 years, and especially it seems the last decade or so, relates to this kind of hunger that people have, a spiritual hunger um, that fermentation helps to address, like uh, this connection to the living world. Well, and, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that like fermentation, like any aspect of food production, just sort of requires us to cultivate a connection to the natural world. And in the case of fermentation, specifically to, you know, invisible forces in 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 the natural world. And um and, and I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you that like, you know, what, what, what really underlies it at, at some level is this, um, you know, spiritual hunger for uh, a, a connection. And, um, and a lot of people find, you know, any kind of making bread, whether they're using yeast or whether they're relying on natural leavening from, uh, from a sourdough fermentation, making bread can be, for many people, like an extremely spiritual experience. Um, you know, we're just watching it rise, having this very physical contact with it, um, you know, having having your physical contact contact with it, like change the texture of the dough. I mean, it's very, very uh, uh, intimate, really. Um, and um, um, and for many people, it's a it's a real spiritual exercise. And, and, and I would say that I would just generalize and say any aspect of fermentation, um, you know, can, can, can be like that. I mean, you described earlier these traditions, um, many of which you've, you've learned about through your work, you know, where, where fermentation has played a vital role for hundreds or thousands of years, you know, based in place, connected to the landscapes and the food that was grown there or the religious traditions. And so many of the people who are fermenting now in the West don't have those same traditions in the same way, whether because they're transient, they've moved from those places, or the generations that held those, you know, no longer practiced them in the last generation or two, and they became disconnected. And it seems like there's a reclaiming of ancestral roots that is also part of this fervor um, in fermentation. But it also seems like those ancestral roots that they're trying to reconnect to are not going to take shape in the same way. They're not going to you know, appear like they did for their grandparents um, or their great parent grandparents or back in the old country where they might have come from is going to take on new shapes and forms. But it's still about this desire to find roots and, and go deeper. I have noticed, um, you know, just just talking to people who come to my workshops or come to my talks or from my emails, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, things that pull people into fermentation. Uh, so, you know, for some people, it's the promise of probiotics. For some people, it's the promise of, you know, preservation of the abundance of the garden. 
For some people, it's just creating outrageous flavors. Um, but for some people, you know, this cultural aspect of it, of reconnecting with tradition, is the most powerful pull that's making them interested in it. Whether it's, you know, there was an annual uh, fermentation ritual that their grandparents did that sort of nobody else picked up. And now, you know, now they're thinking about it and trying to figure out how they can sort of restart that or or as you said, they came from another country where there's some ferment that, you know, they're trying to figure out how to recreate here. But, you know, you also have to, you know, recognize that, you know, most of us are not um, the product of a single ancestry. You know, mo most of us are the product of some, you know, mixed ancestry. And so, you know, depending on, you know, which branch of the family tree we decide to investigate, we might learn about uh, 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 different kinds of traditions. Or, you know, I, I mean, many, you know, many traditions have also been disrupted or and, 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 and displaced. So people don't don't necessarily have an easy time, you know, sort of finding out about all of all of their traditions. But I mean, for me, one of the most exciting things that's happening right now is uh, a real cross pollination of these traditions. Uh, you know, and so you might have people in one part of the world learning about traditions from another part of the world and then applying it to completely different set of ingredients. But I, I mean, one thing that I like to point out to people is that, you know, nobody's invented any new fermentation processes in hundreds and possibly thousands of years. And yet we have all of this incredible innovation because, um, um, you know, there's so many different people who are taking ferments that have been traditional in some region of the world and traditionally applied to some ingredient or set of ingredients that, you know, people in other parts of the world are playing with and applying to different kinds of ingredients, sometimes with, you know, really, really fascinating and wonderful results. So, I, I mean, I think that in the fermentation revival right now, there's, you know, just an incredible amount of innovation and creativity being applied. So it's not just reviving traditions. It's also, you know, applying them in creative and, and, and novel ways to create some new things. Mm. What do you say to the critics who, who call, you know, this current fermentation revival also just a fad? You know, we have kombucha lining the shelves and, and more options for kind of sauerkraut and pickles than you ever had before. A lot of people criticize it and say, well, it's, you know, it's kind of a millennial fueled fad and for the affluent and um, dismiss that. People dismissing fermentation as 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 a fad. I mean, that is just missing, missing the forest for the trees. I, I mean, fermentation has enjoyed enduring popularity. If we think about bread, if we think about cheese, if we think about wine, if we think about beer, if we think about chocolate, if we think about coffee, I mean, products of fermentation are ubiquitous. And I mean, certainly in our time, you know, more people are talking about fermentation than in, you know, um, than, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. But the products of fermentation are no more common in our diets today than they were for our grandparents or our grandparents' grandparents. Um, 
Sure. I mean, there might be more flavors of sauerkraut available than when my grandfather was was my age, but, you know, the sauerkraut is still available. Now, kombucha, sure. I mean, definitely we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in a moment where kombucha, you know, has become extremely popular. But I mean, fermentation is not a fad. Fermentation is a fact. It's it's an integral part of how people make effective use of food resources. And there's always a practical benefit to fermentation. You know, whether it's the, you know, the probiotics or the ability of certain foods to be preserved under fermentation that would be highly perishable without it, um, um, or to make nutrients more easily bioavailable, or to break down some um, potentially toxic compound. There's always practical benefits to, 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 to fermentation. And, you know, that that's why fermentation has been such an enduring feature in food systems all around the world. And in terms of the question of like of, of, of affluence, well, sure. I mean, I mean, affluent people have more choices. If your pocket is full of money, you can get whatever you want that's in the store. And, and in every case, you, you have you have more choices. But I mean, what's interesting to me is that, you know, fermentation practices have always been driven by, um, you know, people who are trying to live off of what they can grow. And fermentation traditions have really been driven by necessity. And there are uh, like, you know, several um, sort of interesting stories that I cite in fermentation uh, uh, as metaphor um, of um, contemporary contexts in which um, um, people coming from rural areas with traditionally fermented foods as central to the diets. Um, I, I mean, the documentation I have is from Sudan in one case and in, from Siberia in another case. But as, you know, as people migrate to cities and become more urbanized, sometimes they reject the flavors of fermentation because they're becoming more affluent and they're associating these flavors and these aromas with like the village life, the less sophisticated village life. So it's a funny inversion to me that in the United States right now, we're, we're hearing all these people who consider fermentation to be like a foo-foo specialty for the affluent <laughs> um, is in such, such sharp contrast with these other situations where the affluent people decide that they're going to sort of leave those flavors of fermentation behind because they sort of signify the you know, less cosmopolitan uh, village life. I mean, yeah, sure. If, if you're going to buy a, like a live jar of sauerkraut at a store that's been under refrigeration, I mean, that's going to have a hefty price tag on it because it's had to have refrigeration um, um, uh, uh, maintained, you know, ever since the initial fermentation. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, my books are mostly about, you know, how to ferment things so that the people who are put off by the, you know, sort of $10 for a pint of vegetables well, I mean, you can buy those vegetables for 50 cents or a dollar, chop them up, salt them, stuff them in a jar that's already left over in your kitchen somewhere. And, you know, fermentation is simple. Fermentation does not require a lot of elaborate equipment. I, I think that, you know, anybody who has the slightest inclination, you know, should be fermenting in their kitchen. And, um, you know, not only will it 
potentially make you healthier, but it will potentially make you feel, you know, more, more connected. Um, so I just think that there, I think that there are a, a lot of potential benefits uh, to fermentation and it's definitely not, you know, just a fad for affluent people. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about the, the shift from village, you know, rural life uh, where fermentation often originated to a more urban settings and how that shifts our palates. But, it, you know, in those rural and village settings, uh, the pace of life was slower. And, you know, when you come to urban settings and the pace of life increases and, and obviously our modern life is an extreme example of that run rampant. But it seems like one of the things that makes fermentation so attractive to folks and, and you uh, kind of intimated this earlier is that it's so much slower than everything else around them. And there's this kind of real desire to slow down in the midst of a very fast paced life that we've kind of accepted well, and I think that that, I mean, just to bring it back to sourdough, I think that that's one of the things that people love about it is that sort of, you know, it it forces us to slow down a little bit. But I also want to say to people who are, um, you know, to people who are busy, who to people who are whose lives are fast paced, like don't assume that your life is too fast paced for for fermentation. If you shred a cabbage, however, you know, for some people that would be a two minute project. For some people that would be a 20 minute project. But you shred a cabbage, you salt it, you stuff it in a jar. Then the week or two that it's fermenting, you know, you can go about your busy business. You don't you don't have to stop while it's fermenting. You just have to, you know, you just have to look at it, maybe burp it a little bit. If something funky starts growing on the top, you scrape it off, but it's just happening while you're going about your life and 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 doing your your fast-paced thing. And then if you're eating on the go and trying to eat fast-paced meals, you can have much healthier, um, um, you know, meals that, that have a lot more, you know, nutrients to them. So, you know, for my, my ultimate like meal, if I'm just feeling too busy to really stop and cook is I'll, I'll make a quesadilla and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put a tortilla, I'll, I'll heat a tortilla, melt some cheese on it. If I take that, that, that quesadilla and I put a bunch of kraut in the middle of it, um, you know, I am making it significantly um, uh, more nutritious. And so, you know, I just think that, you know, having a food like like sauerkraut in your fridge is a way to make the food that you're eating on the go significantly more nutritious. So I, I think it, it doesn't automatically slow down your life, but it can, you know, make your ability to feed yourself on the go much better. Mm. Well, I, I just have one last question for you, Sander, and I and I ask it because I think everybody wants to know, which is what you have fermenting at home right now. Well, I have a lot. I actually, this morning before I came here, I I, I started a, a fermentation project. I started it yesterday, soaking uh, 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 some beans. But I'm making this um, uh, Sichuanese fermented condiment called dobanjang, which is broad beans like um, uh, fava beans fermented with chilies. I harvested my chilies last week and put them in the food processor with with some salt and those started fermenting. And then today I've started uh, growing a fungus, aspergillus fungus, like koji-like fungus on the broad beans. 
and then I'll be fermenting after I grow the fungus, I'll ferment them in a brine for a few months and then I'll combine the chili peppers and the, and the broad beans to, to make my dough banjang. So I have that going. Um, I have some sourdough pancakes that I had for breakfast this morning. Um, and I, I use, I use, you know, what they call the discard of the sourdough just so I can keep on freshening my sourdough. And then I also have oatmeal in there and I have, um, grated daikon radish and some onion and celery uh, and some cheese. So they're, you know, they're like savory uh, vegetable pancakes. I've been harvesting chestnuts for, I have three chestnut trees in my yard and I made um, chestnut koji and I made some chestnut miso and I'm making something called shio koji, salt koji um, uh, with chestnuts, water and salt and then the, the shio koji I use mostly to marinate things. So all those enzymes in the koji that can, you know, break down proteins, break down complex carbohydrates, even break down fats. You know, when you, when you, when you marinate things in the shio koji, those enzymes, you know, break down macronutrients in the foods. And particularly when you break down proteins and it creates amino acids, this tends to, um, um, you know, create, you know, um, deep, compelling uh, uh, flavors. I also have, I have yogurt at home, uh, you know, about once a month I make yogurt. I've, 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 I've lots of ferments going. It, it's, it's pretty much a, a, a constant in my life. And, you know, the fact that I'm doing all this, you know, online fermentation education, then I have like little show and tell items that I can, that I, that, that I can show people and talk about. Natto has become a constant in my life. I mean, right now I'm not making some, but, you know, every month or so I make natto and then some of it I dehydrate and I mix with, um, uh, toasted sesame seeds and and spices, and I make these little sort of natto based um, uh, uh, seasonings that I've been loving. Dry, you know, that are that are dry, dehydrated. That I you know shake on food. I use it as a table condiment. Um, incredibly delicious. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Sandor. It's a real pleasure, and I think I'm going to have to go home and um, reevaluate what I have in my fridge. <laughs> and start playing with some new things. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. Our original essays, films, in-depth interviews, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.